Thank you for listening to this edition of the Notable Speeches Podcast. There are literally hundreds of thousands of podcasts being produced these days. We appreciate your listening to this one. Today, an address by journalist and author Marvin Olasky, longtime editor-in-chief of World News Group, a Christian-based news organization that publishes World Magazine, the World Website, and several podcasts, including the daily news magazine podcast The World and Everything in It. From 1983 until 2007, Mr. Olasky was a professor of journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. He later held the Distinguished Chair in Journalism and Public Policy at Virginia's Patrick Henry College. Marvin Olasky's books include The Tragedy of American Compassion, published in 1992, a book that was instrumental in helping bring about reform of U.S. welfare laws in the 1990s, and a book that also helped form the basis of policy ideas that came to be known as Compassionate Conservatism. Mr. Olasky is the co-author with Warren Smith of Prodigal Press, subtitled The Anti-Christian Bias of American News Media, published in 2013. And his latest book, which you'll learn more about in the address just ahead, is Reforming Journalism, published in 2019. Marvin Olasky presented this address on January 22, 2020, at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you all for coming today. It's uh... Yeah, it's great to be back at Heritage. Um, back in the 1970s, I thought I was pretty smart. I had high SAT scores, a Yale diploma, some work in big-time journalism. I was a, basically a left-wing protester invited into the halls of power. And I was so smart that I did one of the stupidest things anyone could do. I joined the Communist Party, as Rob said. And then purely, really purely through God's grace, I came out of it. And in retrospect, it was actually a beneficial experience for me, not sure for others, but for me it was because it made me realize really how stupid I am. It helped me to understand that other people also considered smart or also stupid. I started wondering about where I could go to find true wisdom. I became skeptical of existential subjectivity and the, and the lack of humility that typifies journalism and typifies me as well when I'm not careful. And that brings me to today's subject. In September, Steve Bannon, you've heard of him, the former Trump aide, spoke to a conservative group in St. Louis. He asked, do you think it's been unpleasant and nasty to date? You haven't seen anything. The 2020 campaign will go down as the most vitriolic and nastiest in American history. It's very simple. We win, we save the country. Well, no, we do not. Uh, we do not save the country if we win by escalating anger whoever on the left or on the right wins by that sword will eventually die by it. And, you know, just a little history, since this is what I studied a lot, uh, the United States really has been exceptional. I know there's a debate about that. Of, of all the revolutions I've studied, the American Revolution is the only one that did not become disastrous. Revolutions in France, Russia, which I became familiar with in my communist days, China, Cuba, Cambodia, other countries, they all started with ideals that quickly became idols. And that could happen here, not, not next year, I don't think, not, probably not in the next decade, but could happen. I visited Argentina last month with its cycles of inflation. That could happen here. We could become even like Venezuela, where class warfare has hurt all classes. And journalism bathed in vitriol is now part of the problem. So if we keep escalating, our cultural decay, our eventual debt-driven national bankruptcy will lead more people to go from fierce words to sticks and stones. 
And so I'd like to lay out nine suggestions based, I hope, in biblical teaching that might help us make journalism part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I do want to stress that these suggestions grow out of my work at World. We have grown at a time when other journalistic enterprises are shrinking. So these nine suggestions I'm going to make, they're not just theoretical constructs. We've road tested them over the years and we've learned that they work. So number one, do journalism at street level, not sweet level. Everyone has opinions. It's easy to sit at our computers in air-conditioned offices and pontificate. At World, we've tried to emphasize really tough, time-consuming, street-level reporting. We like being flies on the wall, watching and listening. We don't want to make ourselves the center of attention and action. We especially don't want to make ourselves the apparent font of wisdom. We like to go out and report. And reporting has fallen into rare circumstances these days. Uh, there's so much opinion journalism there's very little reporting of people actually listening, paying attention, watching, describing. That's number one. Number two, sprinkle salt, not sugar. Some of you here may work in corporate public relations departments. I, I did that for five years. Um, some of you are in nonprofit offices or congressional suites. I've had some experience there. And I know that the job for people in that situation is to make your organization or your boss look good. I did some of that. I worked at DuPont for five years. Again, it was, it was great educationally and financially, but the task really was to hand out sugar, uh, sweet statements that sometimes covered up the truth. And that's not good journalism. And sometimes people are forgetting the divide between good journalism of actually going out and really trying to honestly report what's going on without doing it in a way that's designed to popularize, publicize a particular group or organization or individual. And sugar isn't very helpful either. It just gives us sugar fixes. It, these sweet statements often cover up the truth. It's not good journalism. At World, we try to be salt. Salt adds taste. It's also a preservative. That's our goal, and that makes us unpopular in certain quarters, including sometimes certain conservative quarters, because, well, number three, we try to avoid entangling alliances. We can be salt, not sugar, because we don't have to scratch the backs of other organizations, even when they scratch ours. World, I mean, I, yes, I am, I hope, a Christian first, a conservative second, but I am a conservative. World largely can be the same way, but it's not part of the conservative movement. We are not part of the evangelical movement either. Uh, we can and we do criticize other groups. More than 20 years ago, 23 years ago, actually, World, World was a member of the Evangelical Press Association. We learned that the EPA Code of Ethics prohibited criticism of other EPA members. That made it a mutual protection society. And sometimes organizations, our organizations, conservative or Christian, sometimes are. Uh, we resigned from that EPA. We've tried to avoid such entanglements ever since. So independence is really important. Number four, we like to publish sensational facts, but we try to use understated prose. Much of journalism has become like a movie franchise, Scream 1, Scream 2, Scream 3, and so forth. People who get paid by clicks create clickbait. That's not healthy for consumers or producers. We do have lots of sensational news. At World, we try to tell it, not scream it. And that's also very different, sadly, from a lot of journalism these days. And number five, we try to remember the theological reason for not screaming. The sky is not falling because God holds up the sky. We had a flood a long time ago. God promised not to send another one. This year, 
is the 75th year since we invented nuclear bombs and used two of them on Japan. It is absolutely miraculous that during decades of Cold War, we did not have a nuclear war. There were times we came close. I'm not aware of any time in human history that a massively effective new weapon hasn't been used for such a long time. I mean, that's amazing. Um, it's not natural, it's almost supernatural. And when I think of this, I really am filled with thanksgiving, and you should be too. You know, God is so great that we can't get our arms around him, but he's clearly had his arms around us. Nearly 500 years ago, John Calvin wrote about how we ought to gaze upon God's works that we may be restored by his goodness. And with all the rotten stuff that goes on, still, amazingly, we haven't had the disaster that I think anyone would have predicted we would have had by now. But God's work keeping us from killing each other with death toll in the billions is really a miracle of mercy. My apologies for preaching. Do I, do I hear an amen from anyone? <laughs> All right. Um, okay, six. Now that I've moved into theology, let me wade into some deeper water. You may know the truth sung by Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. Beliefs of some kind, also known as worldviews, direct all reporting and writing. Sometimes in a very implicit way, sometimes explicitly, but there's not even the simplest story is without some degree of a position on something. When firefighters fight fire, we cheer for the firefighters, not the fire. When we have discoveries that help people fight cancer, we are glad of those discoveries. We're not cheering for the cancer. And these days, a lot of people think that stuff that used to be popularly understood as actually social cancer of some kind, well, we're not cheering for the social cancer either. But all reporting in some ways is directed reporting. In the 20th century, some journalists pushed back against what used to be called objectivity, and some still argued that in objective reporting, the reporter could function like a camera, but people increasingly understood, we certainly did, people in journalism certainly did, that what a camera shows depends on where we point it, what kind of lens and film you have, and so on. And so to update the metaphor, you, you are more than your smartphone. Where your smartphone records depends on where you're standing, where you point it, when you turn it on, when you turn it off. You decide which photos and sound to keep or show or play back. When covering stories, reporters decide all the time what's most important to present and what to ignore. Okay, beliefs, judgments, ideologies direct those decisions. Directed reporting. So what does that mean? Does that mean it's hopeless, that we just, it's just everything's opinion? Well, not exactly. Now, in feature stories, particularly the choice of a protagonist, an antagonist, mission obstacles, we call this PAMO when we're running our World Journalism Institute in all stories. At least feature stories and even simple stories have protagonist, antagonist, mission obstacles. The basic structure of a story is someone does something because, but, and then you have the tension that comes in. Again, reporters decide who the someone is, what the something is, what the but represents, and worldviews are important. And that, again, I stress that because this leads to almost sometimes people throwing up their hands. Okay, we don't, if conventional objectivity certainly doesn't work, then it's all subjective, right? It's opinion. Well, this brings us to point number seven here in world's mission statement. We try to provide biblically objective journalism that informs, educates, and inspires. <laughs> Biblical objectivity. It's so different from the conventional notion of objectivity that some people have a hard time getting their arms around it. So I'll try to explain. For 23 years now, I've owned and mostly lived in a tall house on a hillside in Texas. Uh, the house sways slightly when heavy winds hit, 
And that initially made me nervous, pretty tall, and you can be on the top floor, you, you, you feel some movement. But the builder of the house lived next door, so I could actually ask him about the construction. And he showed me it was pretty solid and hasn't fallen down yet. He knew how the house was made because he had made it. Journalists conventionally throughout the 20th century and still these days sometimes describe objectivity as getting opinions A, B, and C, then quoting them equally. But say my neighbor down the street says my house will fall down if the wind gets to 10 miles an hour. And maybe a neighbor across the street says, well, it's made of kryptonite and it would re reject an attack even by Superman. And there may be a third neighbor on the other side says, my house is made of cheese, it will fall apart in a hurricane, but don't worry because I can eat my way out of it. If I quote all their opinions equally, will I have an objective story? Well, no. Even if they were all experts and not slightly nutty, I'm speaking generically, not of my particular neighbors, I still would not have an objectively accurate story because they don't know my house the way my builder knows the house. So a balancing of subjectivities does not give us an objective answer. What does? Well, God is the builder of the house we all live in. He gave us the Bible, which explains how the house was made and what it's made of. I believe that only God knows the true objective nature of things. And I didn't always believe this. I had to come to learn it through some hard things that were hard but useful. I believe that his book, the Bible, is the only completely objective and accurate view of the world which means the only true objectivity is biblical objectivity. Now, do I expect others to believe that? Probably not, unless God impresses that upon them the way he impressed it upon me all these years ago. Um, and happily, he does that for millions of people. Why he doesn't do it for everyone, I don't know. That's the way it is. If any of you have seen the, the weird but wonderful movie Field of Dreams, some people cannot see the baseball players, but they're still there. So what do we do? How do we sort out what's real, what's not, what's true, what's not? Here's, this leads to number eight. This is our technique here. It's a metaphor, Whitewater Rapids. Our business office is in Asheville, North Carolina. And so uh, there are good Whitewater Rapids about 40 or so miles west of it. Uh, when we had our World Journalism Institute classes there, we would sometimes take our students out to it and we would go down the rapids with them, about 25 students at a time, maybe in about six rubber boats. And when I captained one of the rubber boats, because I was the only one there who had some experience, I was such a poor captain that I was constantly running it under bushes and under trees and so forth. And everyone ended up in the water at some point. And one potential reporter ended up in the middle saying, let me out, let me out, which we eventually did. And she did not really make it as a reporter. Whitewater Rapids. It's a shorthand for us. And we actually use it. We have, we have our reporters all over the country and a couple in Africa and Asia and so forth. And so we get together on conference calls every couple of weeks. And as we're discussing stories and how to approach them, who's going to be our protagonist, our antagonist, and so forth, we actually use this rapids as a shorthand. Because people who know whitewater rapids talk about six kinds of rapids. Number one is sort of gently down the stream. Anyone can do it. I mean, I am capable of doing a number three. Number six is going over a waterfall. And unless you're a real expert, you're probably going to die. So best to avoid. Uh, class one. Class one is where the Bible takes an explicit position, so it's easy to follow along. I mean, for example, adultery is wrong. So in a story, let's say, about sexual practices, we would not make an adulterer a hero. And again, I want to emphasize that taking a strong position where God takes one does not give us leeway to misquote our opponents or mischaracterize them or ridicule them. God's a God of truth. He does not require our public relations help. But nevertheless, here's a clear position, and that will influence the way we tell the story. 
Class two, the Bible takes an, an implicit position. For example, uh, parents are responsible for the godly education of the children. So we do support Bible-based schooling at home in private schools or in public schools if the parents think that's best for their particular situation. But we don't think those schools should pretend that God doesn't exist. I mean, that's not neutral, pretending that God doesn't exist. That's taking a very definite position. So in class two, again, we will take a position, but it's we may not be as strongly. We will certainly acknowledge, as we always do, alternatives, but we'll still say there's something that the Bible shows us is right and something wrong in this. Class three, partisans on both sides can quote scripture verses, so only careful study through the Bible leads to biblical conclusions. Uh, for example, one of the things we try to do at World, we, we talk about showing concern for the uns, the unborn, the uneducated, the unemployed, the unsafe, the unchurched, the unfashionable. But what's most important is not whether we feel righteous, it's whether we are helping or hurting. Since all people are made in God's image with the capacity to be creative and productive to a greater or lesser extent, I think we find from both biblical teaching and experience that payments encouraging people not to work are often harmful rather than helpful. And we'll come at it that way. And we'll acknowledge this is a hard thing. You don't, you know, what we do when there's a person uh, at Union Station asking for money to give to not not to give. I mean, this is this is hard, and it requires experience and discernment. And still, we probably get it wrong a lot of times. But we would still say there is biblical teaching here that's very useful on this. And then we come to class four, where there's no clear biblical path. We can bring to bear a significant historical experience and a biblical understanding of human nature. I mean, for example, we should not trust tyrants to honor peace treaties. I mean, we see teaching from the Bible about being suspicious in those circumstances, and history shows that as well. And certainly from my own Communist Party experience, I, I learned that personally. Class five, there's no clear historical or psychological trail, but there's some experience that leads us to be wary. You know, I can choose one particular example because we're sitting here just off Capitol Hill. We should not expect efficiency from big bureaucracies. There's something we learn from history and human nature that, that something, something's gained, but something's lost in that process. And we should not be surprised when we have big plans and big projects and they actually turn out to be harmful rather than helpful. And then class six, again, these are, this is like the going over the waterfall rapids. We're on our own. For example, uh, specific foreign policy matters or foreign trade agreements. You know, we, we, class six rapids, we, we will balance different perspectives and our coverage might be similar to that of a traditional AP story before the AP became very politicized, but a generation ago, you would see that balancing of subjectivities in the Associated Press story. And we will do that also. We won't be very different from that traditional approach because we don't know. And we try hard not to either overuse or underuse scripture. I'll tell you, when I, when I first became a Christian uh, in 1976, one of the first things I saw, I went into uh, the church starting to go to, and there was a, a group that was raiding members of Congress on their votes, and whether these were good people based on the Bible or evil people, one of the, one of the questions was, should the U.S. relinquish control of the Panama Canal? And if you were against that, you were on God's side. If you were for that, you were on Satan's side or something like that. And that I, even then, I could see this is pretty silly. There is no, unless I've missed it, there is no book of the Panama Canal in the Bible. And it doesn't tell us what to do in some situations like that. Great discernment is necessary. And we won't, we won't pretend 
to say we know what to do. We may sometimes give our opinion, but we say, you know, we don't know. We're very fallible. We're not experts. So classification in this way, and we use it. I mean, it, we've been using it for 20 years. I think it helps us to avoid overusing the Bible, which is a tendency among some theological conservatives, or underusing it, which is a tendency among some theological liberals. So we do try to take strong stands where the Bible is clear. We avoid doing so when the Bible isn't. And we have the opportunity to get things right by trying to practice biblical objectivity, but Christians are not immune to the temptations and pressures that affect other journalists. And that leads to, to my last point, number nine, as J.I. Packer, a great theologian, summed up the Bible's teaching, God saves sinners. And that's really important. God is not saving good people or wonderful people or holy people. God saves sinners. And really, all world's reporting and writing is based on the understanding that God is holy, we are sinners, Christ's sacrifice bridges the gap. The heavens declare the glory of God, but the streets proclaim the sinfulness of man. So biblical journalism emphasizes God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And we try to do this, again, being very careful not to mischaracterize or abuse or think of our opponents as forever enemies, because some of the people, this is the week of the pro-life march here, some of the strongest pro-life people are people who are formerly abortionists or proclaimers of abortion. So God saves sinners. And we try to show this in our reporting. So thank you all very much. Journalist and author Marvin Olasky talking about some of the themes in his recent book, Reforming Journalism, from PNR Publishing. If you haven't yet done so, we invite you to subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app you prefer. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Send us an email, feedback at notablespeeches.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening.